On February 25th, I got the phone call I had been dreading for years. My brother Lewis was dead. I was dumbfounded. We had just spoken 48 hours earlier. My sister and I had finally found a rehabilitation program that would treat all three of his afflictions, his manic depression, his anxiety, and his alcoholism, not just one. And that's what had happened so often in the past. For the first time in a long time, we had hoped that Lewis would finally get the help he needed and deserved. That was Lizzie Feliciano reading from her first opinion, the U.S. mental health care system failed my brother and millions of others like him. We're joined by Chuck Ngolia, the president and CEO of the National Council for Mental Wellbeing, a membership organization that supports mental health centers across the country. Chuck shares the provider perspective on the situation that Lizzie describes and the state of mental health care in the U.S. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you, using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie and Chuck. Thank you so much yeah. for, for inviting us. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Lizzie, tell me about your brother, the one you saw when he was stable and not drinking. My brother was a bigger than life personality. Um, all of his life, he had a mantra, and it was Big Lou can do. Uh, that was who he was. <laughs> he was six foot four, over 300 pounds, just a guy that was bigger than life and a big heart, um, very loving. Um, he always wanted to be accepted and just be around his family, kind soul, um, an amazing artist. Um, you know, in his good times and in his bad times, he just love to pick up a piece of paper and a pencil and, and express himself artistically. Had so many talents. Um, just an all-around great guy. Sounds like somebody all of us would have had a good time meeting. He was the life of the party. You know, you wrote that your family thought Lewis was, quote, a, a troubled kid with a rebellious streak, your basic problem child. When did you and your family and Lewis get the first inklings that he had some mental health problems. Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was, you know, I was the baby sister. And so I uh, typically saw the good side of him. Um, but when I was old enough, I mean, as, as really as, as old as five, I started to kind of observe certain behaviors from him. Um, he would have emotional outbursts and um, he would oftentimes square up against my, my parents and just fits of anger. And I was clearly too young to understand what was happening, but I think that was probably, um, you know, he was around nine where my mother, I think clearly began to understand that something was not right. Um, from a communication standpoint, he was just a kid. So I, I don't think that mm. he really even 
had the ability to articulate what he was feeling. Um, you know, he was coming from a divorced um, family. My mother had had divorced his father. Um, he now had a stepfather, which was, you know, is my father, um, and a new family dynamic to deal with. And so rather than, you know, expressing it in a way that we would probably deem to be more healthy, I think that's just how he took it out. And, and nobody in my household could could figure it out. No one, no one really knew how to get to what he was truly feeling on the inside. You said he started drinking at a pretty young age. Yeah. So um, before he hit his teenage years, you know, my mother um, decided that uh, it was a little bit too much for her to handle and sent him to live with his biological father. And unfortunately, his biological father had moved on and had a, a new wife and stepchildren. And so when my brother arrived, it was almost like an unwanted guest. Whether it's too much uh, information or not, but I think his story needs to be told as, as completely as possible. Um, he was basically, you know, put in a basement and said, you know, you could stay here, sure, but you're not really part of the, the nuclear family. And so he was left to his own devices. Um, and his biological father was, was somewhat of a drinker. So there was always alcohol readily available. Um, and for the most part, you know, even when I would ask my brother about his growing up, he would say he raised himself. You know, it was just a matter of loneliness and uh, feeling unaccepted. And that led him to picking up whatever was around and there was alcohol readily available. So Chuck, is what Lizzie described a common scenario? Hmm. Well, Lizzie, let me start by saying, you know, thank you for sharing your story. And it makes me sad to hear it, but it's not unusual. I'm, I even just know from my own experience, I grew up in a family where my mother was crippled by anxiety, so much so that she never left the house. But we, like your family, we didn't have words to understand what was happening or to know that there would be interventions and support that could actually give her and us a different outbreak, so a different outcome. And I think, unfortunately, that is the experience of many people. You know, we, most people don't really understand what mental illnesses or substance use disorders look like, that they're real, common, and treatable, and that there are alternatives. Yeah, so I think the divorce was um, incredibly difficult for him, and that probably triggered a lot of just negativity. He was angry at my father and had expressed that, you know, multiple times throughout his life. And the school system didn't know how to handle him either because he dropped out. You know, he had to go back for his GED because he couldn't find support in the school system. So he was just misunderstood. And I think in that, in that rejection and in that loneliness, you know, that's where the anxiety started and the depression started. And then the drinking just compounded that. And no one saw that for what it was, right? It was just, he's a problem child. He is a troubled kid. Were you in one, were you both in the same city? We were both in New Jersey, in the state of New Jersey. We lived probably 45 minutes away from each other growing up. Um, rarely saw him because at that, you know, as early as 13, he was raising himself. You know, he was probably, you know, out with his friends, trying to find acceptance wherever he could, trying to mask the emotions because, you know, anytime that he expressed them, whether it was in front of, you know, us or, or his, his other family, his father's family, you know, clearly people just didn't understand him. So they, they, no one wanted to be around him because they didn't know, um, what side of him they would get. 
He was often referred to as a walking time bomb. Um, you know, those are the labels that looking back, I think to myself, how damaging was that? And it wasn't meant to be hateful. It came from a place of, of lack of education, you know, lack of, of understanding. Um, and I think that's, that's what is sort of driving me now to want to speak up. And I have had an overwhelming number of people who have responded to the essay, sharing their stories, saying that they're going through the same exact thing themselves, or they have a loved one. And there's just this misunderstanding and, and these questions, where do I go? How do I get help? What can I do? And I, and I had someone been able to offer my family guidance, offered my brother guidance. I think the outcome would have been completely different. Yeah. So, you know, Lizzie, um, your experience is similar to so many people's and families. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a new skill set, right? We don't all, we don't, we aren't born, you know, kind of knowing this stuff. Um, and, and so uh, it's really important to give people tools that they can use. One of the things that I've learned while working on this with you is that the combination of mental illness and substance abuse actually has a name and it's called dual diagnosis, something I had never known before. Um, Chuck, are mental illness and addiction commonly undiagnosed or misdiagnosed problems? We know that mental illness and, and substance use disorders are common. About one in four people in any given year uh, will have one. And yet only a fraction of those people are in treatment, either because their illness goes undiagnosed uh, or they have a hard time getting into care. Lizzie, you started to touch on the concept of stigma and shame. That must play a big role in not seeking help or not wanting to get help. Absolutely. I mean, even till this day, in my family specifically, um, you know, my my family comes from the Caribbean island of Puerto Rico, and so does my wife. Oh, very good. Um, you know, and in the Latin American culture, right there, there is a very strong um, sort of pride, if you will, effect and and it was just not okay to admit that there was any sort of um, a mental health issue. Um, and the reality is that even my mother was suffering from mental illness. And mm. she today in her late, you know, her late age is on medication finally. But even in my teenage years, when I, at that point, um, having, you know, had the, the privilege of a good education, understood what I was seeing at home, you know, it was a constant, um, uh, I was constantly trying to encourage her, mom, let's go to counseling as a family. Let's try to reach out and get help. And it was just constant rejection. And it was because she was afraid of what others would say about her and her family if they knew that she was trying to get counseling. I mean, culturally, that was a challenge for us. Um, that unfortunately, you know, did contribute to my brother, you know, passing. So that's very brave of you to be speaking out to parents and trying to encourage them to do things that nobody wants to do. Those must have been hard conversations. They were very hard conversations. Um, they were conversations that led to a period of my life where I was alienated from my family um, because I was, you know, thankfully able to understand for myself that if I did not step back and make sure that I was healthy, I couldn't in no way, shape or form help my family become healthy. If we don't, if we don't get past that very 
what seems like a basic barrier, it, it it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, you know, ha- finding a solution for this. It's, it's something that just has to be addressed. You know, Lizzie, one of the things that strikes me is that uh, every survey that's done asking people, A, do they think they have a mental health problem? Then asking them, why don't they seek care? This notion of stigma or is always one of the top three answers. But there are two others that are also really insidious. The other, well, the other one is, I don't think I can afford treatment. <laughs> and, and then the next one is, I don't know where to go. And so these things all compound upon each other, right? You know, so think about if you're already feeling ambivalent and then you have no idea um, if you can uh, readily access care or afford it, uh, that makes it even, even more daunting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I've been in, in healthcare for 20 plus years and um, very much around, you know, this concept of social determinants of health and, you know, health inequities and social barriers. Um, and I've, I've I stated it in different forums where for as much as we talk about it, <laughs> I think as an industry, we've done a really bad job at making it a priority. Um, and the mental health crisis is just escalating and it's scary. Um, I, I mentioned in my story, one of the last hospitalizations that he had in the Fort Lauderdale area when I was able to speak finally to the case manager and explained his situation, she had notified me that he was going to be discharged. I said, he has nowhere to go. Well, he apparently gave her an old license that he carried with him with an address where he lived three plus years ago. I said, he doesn't live there anymore. And her exact words were, that's not my problem. I said, well, can you at least hold him until I can find a family member to get there? And it wasn't an option. And that just can't yeah. be the way we approach caring for another human life. I really found that compelling, Lizzie, because it it makes me realize all the more how we separate healthcare in America, that there's physical health and mental health. There's, you know, physical health and dental care. And, you know, all these things which should be part of one kind of unified, we're one body, one mind. We, we shuffle off into different parts. And that, that piece of your story really made me think of that. Uh, Chuck, is that kind of fracturing of the healthcare system in America part of the problem? Well, Patrick, would it be fair to say we don't have a healthcare system in America? I mean, I think that's, <laughs> isn't that one of our fundamental problems, right? Most countries have a healthcare system. There's somebody in charge who's thinking holistically about you know, priorities and access. And, you know, we have a patchwork of funding systems and providers. Uh, It's hard to pass information. There's no incentives to cooperate, you know, and then we've got, uh, you know, our quote unquote safety net is so variable. I mean, if you live in Birmingham, Michigan, or Birmingham, Alabama, that kind of access to care you have is radically different. Uh, You might have the same illness, uh, but the kinds of supports that you have available could be uh, really different. Lizzie, did did Lewis reach out to you often? He, um, a- as an adult, he would stay in in regular contact. Um, he was, you know, well as well as can be expected, functioning, um, living in the Miami area. He 
had been in business for himself for several years. He installed floors. He was, he was an incredibly talented individual. Um, and he was a functioning alcoholic all of his life. Um, right before COVID hit, he lost his job and he started drinking even more heavily. And that just began to compound the, the situation. Um, he finally reached out because he was evicted from his home. He had no money. Um, he had no health insurance, nowhere to go. And of course we took him in and it was in those last two years that we were hit with the reality of just how, how, um, far the addiction and the mental illness had, had, you know, taken him. And, um, there were many times over the last two years where I cried, my family cried because we would look back and identify moments in time where we thought to ourselves, had we done something then, had we intervened then, had we sought and fought for him to get help then, maybe this would not be as, as grave a situation as it is. But it sounds like you, it sounds like you did a lot of work trying to get him into programs. These last two years <laughs> were super intense. Um, I mean, the drinking and the anxiety and just the, the mental illness wreaked havoc on his organs and on his physical health. And so when he came to us, um, he, we knew immediately he needed to be hospitalized and, um, we were able to get him in. We started, you know, down the path of trying to get him Medicaid and, and, whatever, you know, health insurance we could possibly drum up for him based on his condition. Um, and he ended up his first hospitalization. He was in there for three months. Um, you know, we dropped him off at the ER and he was in for three months. His kidneys were failing. His liver was shot. And while in there, he would call, he was, um, you know, emotionally all over the place. He was hallucinating. And I, I was the one who initiated behavioral health asked for the team to evaluate him because he would call us saying, you know, with suicidal thoughts and the behavioral health team evaluated him in that three month period, three times and all three times deemed that he was fine. Seriously. Yes. Um, I would get phone calls from the nurse on the floor to let me know that they found him walking up and down the hallway, banging on doors and shouting. And yet he was okay. He escaped from the hospital in his hospital gown, drove his car to the gas station at the corner. They sent the police to get him and bring him back. And he was okay. I, I was beside myself. Nothing that they saw and nothing that his family expressed to them was enough for them to consider himself a risk to himself and to those around him. Um, and at that point, as a, we were just so frustrated. We did not know where to turn. Um, after several hospitalizations, um, when he was released, we sat him down. We said, Louis, you need help. We really need to consider a rehabilitation, a residential program. This is not something that, you know, a, a, a softer program would, would solve for. And so we approached several programs in the state of Georgia, which since he was staying with us here. Um, and the first question was, does he have insurance? Cross the board. 
And the moment I would say no, well, how is he going to be able to pay for the program? Can family help him pay for the program? And my question back was often, well, can we evaluate him first, get him situated, and I will work with you. I will work with the family to figure this out. But they would not even see him until we could give them a response in terms of how the financial aspect of the program would be covered. Um, it was it was a very difficult time for us, um, not only dealing with him, seeing him in the shape that he was, but just, again, I go back to humanity, just sitting back and saying, I don't understand. Um, we had one program that finally evaluated his uh, medical records from, from his hospitalization, and, and their response was, he's too complicated of a case. Chuck, I can sense you nodding your head here um, in, in sort of a familiar story. Well, you know, you know, it's it's, it's um, none of this stuff is fun to hear, right? And and it's um, it's also complicated. Um, you know, I have no idea, um, you know, the nature of these programs. Uh, you know, I know for us, our members are not for profit organizations. They frequently provide um, uh, care care to folks who are indigent. Who um, and at the same time, in a good year. They might break even, and and there's this constant tension between how do you uh, make sure that you are you know supporting people who need it the most and can keep keep your doors open, and you know unfortunately, especially for substance use in the public sector, so not you know outside of insurance, uh, we're heavily dependent on grants. You know, I don't know what other part of medicine, you know, you show up at the at the hospital and they say, well, we've run out of grant funding for stents this month, but we can do bypasses. You know, that's <laughs> not, you know, we wouldn't accept that. Um, but for substance use, especially for poor people, that's the way it works. In some states, the money that they get from the federal government is 80% of the treatment dollars available in that state. And the entire block grant is only a few billion dollars. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really, um, you know, we need much bigger um, uh, kind of investment. Uh, well, it would be great eh, if we had universal health care, right? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> it would be great if we had a more, uh, 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 a bigger level of investment for substance use. I think people are starting to realize that substance use is a much bigger problem than we've ever paid attention to previously. I think COVID has really kind of exacerbated that. People are seeing their family members and friends who are suffering. And Congress is showing up in ways that they hadn't uh, up until recently, but so much more needs to be done. When you use the term indigent, that could mean that people don't have enough money or that the care is too expensive. For them, is it a little bit of both? Well, I mean, in in the not-for-profit sector, it's usually people don't have insurance, you know. So in most states, there are there's money put aside by the state government and and sometimes by counties uh, for people who have no other form of coverage. But your question is is, is there's also a different one. There is a for-profit, you know, addiction treatment system, and you know. Uh, the, the practices there, depending on the state and the circumstances, can, can be highly variable. Yeah, the programs that we looked into were were mostly nonprofit. Um, some of them were faith based. Some of them were just available to the community. Um, there was a moment in time when he actually reached out to the state's uh, crisis line 
And, you know, the wait list was just unbelievable. And, you know, I had spoken to several folks. I, I would try to speak. Anyone that would listen would hear what I had to yeah. say. Yeah. And in one um, conversation, I was very blunt. And I said, by the time he's up on the wait list, he will be dead. This is an acute situation. Help me. And, you know, there's so much red tape. There's so much bureaucracy involved that it just never became a reality for him. Um, my sister, who is in Florida, was um, able through... Um, actually the organization that she's employed by to identify a residential program. And it was through her personal connection there that they made room for him. So tell, tell us about that program that worked. I'm, I'm curious. So, so she, she works and I've actually had uh, conversations with the CEO since the story was published, Aspire Health Partners in, in the central Florida area. One of our members. An amazing, an amazing um, group of caring individuals, and they have a residential health program. And my sister, because she worked there, um, you know, wasn't sure what the right procedure would be to be able, you know, to fit my brother into a program. Um, but she was able to to speak to the residential program. Um, you know, they reviewed his his files and said, you know what, let's just get him in. And literally, you know, that's, it's in my essay, he, he was accepted and he was excited. We found out, um, I think it was maybe on a Thursday and he was able to get to the program the following Thursday. So there was about a week um, of wait. And in that week, you know, he was very positive and upbeat and he understood that they would not only uh, address his mental health issues, make sure that he was on the right medications for his mental health condition, but they would also address the substance abuse um, and keep, it was a, it was a long-term program. So it was about, a, I believe it was a one-year program. So while they were in there treating his whole person, not just the disease, um, you know, they would also help him begin thinking about what it would be like to go back into society, right. As, as a healed individual. And, you know, the comfort and the peace that I have is that when he passed, he passed in a program, which he knew how hard we had been working to find. And if nothing else, I believe that he closed his eyes that night and, and he went to sleep thinking to himself, I'm, I'm going to do this. Um, and so that's the comfort that we have. It's, it's great to hear you talk positively and that you're able to take something positive away from this, but that Lewis died just hours after checking into what sounds like an ideal program from so-called natural causes likely caused by years of drinking, that must have been incomprehensible to you. It was. I mean, right, when what we lived with him over the last two years was was incredibly difficult, as I've said. And we saw firsthand the damage that these years of drinking and self-medicating had done to his body and to his organs. Um, you know, he was suffering from, he had arrhythmia, um, you know, 
signs of congestive heart failure. He had cirrhosis of the liver. He, at that point, um, you know, was not able to metabolize the alcohol that he was drinking. And so that was complicating things, the hallucinations. Um, and so when he checked himself into the program, we were really hoping that there was enough time left for there to be some resemblance of, of a uh, healthy you know, life for him. Um, but he, he did pass. Um, we actually did receive the autopsy this week and he died from natural causes, primarily, um, an arrhythmia. So he went to sleep and he never woke up. He was how old then? He was 52. Uh, Just reflecting on this story. Um, you know, the, unfortunately this is not an uncommon story because the average age of death for an adult with serious mental illness in this country is 52 years old. And it's principally because uh, historically we've not paid enough attention to their underlying physical health issues. Uh, and that's why our organization and many others have, over the last t- 15 years or so have really emphasized this integrated care of making sure that people can get both their physical, mental health and substance use care uh, at the same location. Um, it's hard to do, but it, uh, as as Lizzie points out, it's the right thing to do. And organizations like Aspire and many others really work hard to make that happen. Telling a story, especially a tragic one like Lewis's, can start conversations. Lizzie, if you have one thing that could happen because of the essay that you wrote, what would you want it to be? I want everyone that has influence resources at hand to come together in the name of of individual suffering with mental illness and behavioral health issues. We have to get around the table more than we do today. We have to be willing to pool our resources. We have to be willing to look across state borders, county borders, neighborhood, train tracks, school systems. We have to be willing to look past all of that and just sit down and figure out how we can help people feel valued, feel whole, and feel hopeful despite what they might be suffering and going through. And it's going to take, it takes a village. Well, Lizzie, I think you're absolutely right. And I would say though, the other person that you need to have at that table is your legislator. If you think about what, what happened over these last few years with the amount of attention that Congress paid to the opioid epidemic, it was because every time they went back to their district or to their state, people were talking to them about a family member or a friend who died as a result of, of, of uh, using opioids. And we need the same kind of groundswell around mental illness and substance use. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not lost on me that four times as many people die in this country every year from alcohol than they do for opioids. Yet opioids gets all the attention because that's what people feel comfortable, you know, kind of talking about. So you're absolutely right, Lizzie. We need to continue to have conversations Absolutely. And, and if I could add one other thing, it would be, you know, to parents. I'm, I'm a mother of nine-year-old twins. And, you know, I look at them very differently now because, because of what I've experienced. Because now I, I'm connecting the dots of the childhood that I had with the death of my brother. And if I could say anything else, it would be to the parents out there. You know, when you look at your children and you see them experiencing something, 
don't assume they're being rebellious. Don't just make an assumption mm -hmm. that they're having a bad day or that this is a phase that they're going through. You know, I th really just want to encourage parents to be willing to sit their children down and have those conversations. And in the moment that you might not have the words, seek the help. Lizzie, thank you for sharing Lewis's story with us. It, it can't be easy talking about this. It gets a little easier every day, you know, the, I, 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 again, and thank you for running the essay because I have received over a dozen personal emails in addition to the responses to the, the comments to the article of just people needing help. And, um, as I mentioned, the, the CEO of Aspire, um, reached out to me on Saturday and we had a really long conversation and she is now willing to use this as a platform. Um, to get a little bit louder in the Central Florida community. And I think it's just, it takes more people being open to telling their story and being transparent and a little bit vulnerable. Um, the, the more stories we tell, I think the more, you know, the more will, will happen. So anything I can do. I hope some great good comes from your grief. And thank you, Chuck, for the work you do on behalf of the millions of U.S. children, adults, and families with mental health and substance use problems. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Listeners, please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And please put the word podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate you reviewing or rating the podcast on whichever platform you use to get it. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Mm -hmm.